How would you define dementia? How would you describe dementia in general? And I guess also kind of what what kinds of dementia are there? The formal definition of dementia in the textbooks is a brain condition progressive in nature that affects different aspects of brain function. Dementia really is just an umbrella term that describes a number of conditions which cause a progressive decline in primarily cognitive abilities, so memory and language and visual spatial function, or something that's called executive function, so problem solving. Two or more of those things, so it's affecting all parts of the brain. When these get to an extent that they start interfering with activities of daily living, when the cognitive or the memory deficits start impairing function, that becomes a criteria for a diagnosis of dementia. So it's not just a bit of forgetfulness. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be enough that it impacts your ability to plan your day, look after yourself hygienically, feed yourself, that sort of stuff. There's several other aspects of dementia that are also there within diagnostic guidelines and so on that it affects emotional feeling and behaviour and other psychological symptoms. So things like hallucinations or even delusions, agitation, apathy, all of these things are relatively common in dementia and they can occur at different stages. Some of them occur slightly more commonly in different subtypes. But of course, you don't just wake up with dementia one day. Inevitably, there's a story of people who progress to an extent and in a way that line is a little bit arbitrary. There are lots of potential forms of dementia, but there are a few that are the most common. So Alzheimer's disease being the most common form of dementia in the UK, which is a specific disease process that affects particular areas of the brain initially and then spreads throughout the brain. So Alzheimer's disease usually would show itself with a specific memory deficit at the beginning and then other kinds of cognitive and functional problems follow. Dementia is the umbrella term for the state of people who have impairments across multiple functions of the brain that's enough to limit their ability to look after themselves. But within that, there are different subtypes of dementia of which the most commonly known is Alzheimer's. Then there are other ones like vascular dementia and there's other ones like Lewy body dementia, rarer ones too, and they can be mixed. So the important thing to get right in your mind is that all of Alzheimer's is a kind of dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's. So one is like the family, Alzheimer's is like a cousin of vascular, but they can all be related. And any of them can be mild, moderate or severe. Other types of dementia can be caused by strokes. So having several small strokes, some of them might have been apparent, some may not have been. So that's sort of called vascular dementia. People can have a combination of different types as well. So mixed dementia often will apply to people who've got some changes in the brain, likely due to Alzheimer's disease, but also have got some vascular dementia as well. And yet this speaks to the fact that by far the biggest risk factor for dementia is age, and people don't develop dementia from nowhere as well, in the sense that often people have got other medical problems. People who've got diabetes or have been smokers or have got problems with their heart commonly might show itself in a vascular dementia in the context of someone who's got lots of known cardio vascular risk factors. We're getting to the stage where when you look at the proteins in the cerebral spinal fluid or the the proteins that we can see on MRI scans or even in autopsy series with the actual brain under a microscope that what we think of as classical for Alzheimer's in life may not be what you see under the microscope so there's this disparity. A lot of the time it does match up but not 100% of the time. So that means that our understanding of these conditions and their interrelation still needs research because it's not clean cut by a long shot. And then there are other very important 
and slightly less common forms of dementia, so things like Lewy body dementia or frontotemporal dementia, which have slightly different pathologies and affect different areas of the brain and so therefore show themselves in slightly different ways. The thing is that ageing is complicated because you're trying to account for things that have happened over decades. Correlation is not necessarily causation and there's a lot more that we need to understand about specific subtypes like Alzheimer's disease and dementia in general. That's really interesting. I mean, my dad's initial diagnosis was mild vascular dementia based on a stroke or a, a couple of strokes potentially. And then eventually now he is mixed dementia and with like vascular and, and Alzheimer's, I think. And it's no longer mild. Do you remember you? Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad Episode 4 Old People Are People This episode includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. So I am in central London at the, now I've literally not got this written down, I was just taking a selfie in front of it, the Institute of Psychology? Division of Psychiatry. Yeah, okay. Like, that was like a classic mistake, psychology, psychiatry there. <laughs> Although this is a division that's got a mixture of disciplines in it, so psychologists and yeah. psychiatrists and lots of basic science researchers as well, so it's, there's a, a spread of people here. I'm here with Jonathan Huntley. I've come to you because you are someone with knowledge in terms of dementia. Your Welcome Trust funded work has been around dementia, but yeah. you do a lot of other things too. I am based here at UCL and the Welcome have funded a study that we're at the relatively early stages of to try and help us understand more about the lived experience of people, particularly with advanced dementia. So looking at ways of trying to measure awareness or consciousness, if you like, in people with dementia to identify how that might change with dementia progression with really the motivation to try and improve our understanding and care for people with dementia. So that's what I'm spending the majority of my time doing at the moment. I'm also an NHS clinician, so I work with people with dementia for a memory service in North London. And that's sort of around the diagnosis and, and management of of, of dementia or forms of dementia. So I have been, I guess, involved or working with or in dementia care for probably about 15 years or so, or even longer. So I, I qualified as a doctor in 2001. And I think that all doctors have experience of working with people with dementia, no matter what a subspeciality you work in. But I went through the junior doctor years and worked for a bit in general medicine with some neurology, so became more exposed to people with, with dementia. I moved into doing psychiatry training in 2005, but with a view to working, not necessarily at that stage, just within dementia, but I guess fascinated by how diseases affecting the brain, if you like, or the body can cause symptoms in people's mind and behaviour, which led me more to the psychiatry side of things. And very quickly, I 
particularly enjoyed working with older adults and working in dementia care. And dementia crosses those boundaries between sort of neurology and psychiatry. It's a brain disease that very much affects how people think and feel and function and so on. I was interested in that from a scientific point of view, but also very much motivated by wanting to help improve the quality of life and care and treatment. And there's a lot of people who are facing dementia and living with dementia. So it felt like a a useful thing to go into from a clinical point of view as well. Yeah, I mean, this is it. I mean, we have an aging population demographically. So this is a state of being that more and more people are going to have to live through and it's been interesting from my point of view you know all my life my dad has been an old man but when I sort of started recording my dad I did not realize that I was accidentally recording I guess a kind of long-term study in someone's lived experience Mm. lots of tape of my dad explaining very eloquently what it's like to lose eloquence just the right moment that you can capture someone describing something that maybe maybe now because my dad is you know older than when I started he might not be able to describe that I've accidentally recorded experiential data that could be useful to science I guess Uh, but that wasn't my intention I just wanted to talk to my dad about his life one of the things that I guess partly motivated some of the research that that we're doing is trying to tap into that essentially enormous issue that People with dementia are sort of concerned about how it might go on and affect them. And for family members and carers, sort of concerns around as the person that they once knew gets more and more affected by the dementia, what does that mean for them and how they're still able to understand what's going on around them and what that means for their relationship and so on. Because from a clinical perspective or from a diagnostic process we concentrate you know rightly so on some of the memory difficulties and we often think about dementia sort of initially primarily as a, as a memory disorder and how that affects various aspects of memory or what we call cognitive function and how that then can interfere with people doing activities of daily living and these things are, are central and very important but there's something deeper and broader that's accompanying that I think as well which is this sort of sense of potential loss of the person that was there and uncertainty about what that's like what that feels like both for the person and then for their their family as well it's one of the things that particularly at the more advanced stages where communication is often very challenging or very difficult it can be really hard to know what the person with more advanced dementia is actually able to experience of you know themselves and the world around them that can be quite distressing for family members and for caregivers and obviously potentially for the person with dementia themselves so these things that are in one sense a bit more nebulous or harder to sort of pin down and you know a word like consciousness has got so many different meanings isn't it and interpretations it's it's very difficult to again be very certain and clear about definitions here but i think that that's something that dementia does seemingly affect and influences it does sound both difficult but very interesting that your dad is able to articulate some of that and thinking about how it's been affecting him and his own awareness of himself and the changes that he's noticing and you seeing that as well life to me is life number two it's a difference literally from sort of when i became conscious of life on that year one or something until i was 87 i lived the same life which was to me a life of normality within Earth's existence.
minutes. And at that point, as my neurons began to collapse or whatever, I actually moved into a second life, which is the life I'm living now. As he's lost an ability to talk about many, many other things, the one kind of thing he can still be an expert on is himself and like how he feels and so sometimes I feel like when he's articulating the loss and the sadness of of everything he's almost the most the person I used to know Mm. and also you know I can never know what it feels for him so as you were saying sometimes you might do something for someone who is living with dementia and you won't know if that was a thing that made their quality of life good or bad because they can't tell you and you can only judge based on your own opinions but also practically none of these concerns is made in a pure vacuum and none of them can be purely about him they also have to be about the practicalities and like what can we fit within our lives in terms of what kind of care we can give him ourselves but also what kind of care can we afford to give him and all of those kind of things are very much in my mind even though I personally at the moment I'm taking a step back actually from spending time with him I uh, was a carer very close to him lived very close to him saw him every day for quite a lot of years but I'm lucky that there's three other siblings and kind of tag you you know tag out so I'm not sort of seeing him so much but I'm going to see him again to record a final conversation to see what his lived experience is like now and I'm very interested but also nervous to see if he can still be eloquent like what that will be for all of the other recordings I've done with him there's been no question in my mind about whether he could consent to that recording and I'm not sure if it's going to be as clear cut now for this final conversation and I guess that's one of the questions that I have is do you think that someone with dementia can consent in the same way that they previously did. I certainly agree that the whole issue around capacity and consent is obviously incredibly important and quite difficult. It's something that we had to be very diligent about thinking about doing this sort of research because if you're wanting to do research in people with dementia who do not have the capacity to provide consent then there very obviously need to be very clear checks and balances around that and so as I say we're at the beginning stages of the study but the study's been in the development stage for actually a few years now and part of that was going through the I think crucial processes of thinking around the ethical issues and the issues of capacity and there's very clear national guidelines around conducting anything but specifically conducting research within people who, who lack capacity so it is certainly something that is possible to do and there are ways of ensuring that the people or potentially people who might be involved in the research have got the checks and balances around that there is due process in terms of essentially ensuring that this is something they would have wanted to do and there's a whole framework around getting a consultee they're called to declare that this is somebody who had their capacity there is a clear sense they would have wanted to participate and again one of the things that's obviously crucially important is it has to be very clear that the research is not going to be harmful or in that sense distressing for somebody so that's from a research point of view in terms of Dementia, there's lots of different types of dementia, lots of different people with dementia, individuals with dementia, people who work in any hospital or clinical setting have to spend quite a bit of time assessing capacity and, and consent. So thinking around or judging someone's capacity, again, there's frameworks to do that. So the Mental Capacity Act and so on and ways that you can assess capacity for any clinical treatment, if you like, or intervention. So there's clear frameworks to help with that. And I think within dementia, it's something that the real, I think, benefit of 
The Capacity Act, for example, is that not only is the process very clear, but there's that sense that people should be presumed to have capacity unless you very clearly demonstrate, and it's not a non-trivial thing to do, that someone lacks the capacity to do something. So that is going to be different amongst different individuals of dementia at different stages. The onus on, on the person who's asking those questions to provide all of the various sort of ways of trying to get over any barriers of communication or understanding or you know for example if someone with relatively early dementia's memory is starting to become a problem but they can still read and take in information you can make sure that you provide the information in a way that can help them remember it to help them consider it to help them weigh up these things it is something that is very important but there's definitely no clear someone with dementia probably doesn't or definitely doesn't have capacity Having said that, with the progression of something like dementia, by the time that dementia is in the more sort of advanced stages, it would be much more likely that someone would be judged as lacking capacity to make decisions just because of the way that the dementia would affect their ability to think things through, to hold on to information that's relevant and to weigh it up and to communicate it. I mean, it's an interesting one as well. I mean, when my dad sort of thinks of himself as life number one and life number two, life number one version of him may have wanted different things from what life number two version of him is going to want. When he was younger, he might have imagined a future that he wanted to look this way or that way because he was thinking, well, I'll be me and I'll be in that experience. And if I'm me, then I'm going to want X, Y, Z. But like now he's not him in the same way. He's a, a different yeah. human. I mean, he's still a person. He's still got aspects of his personality are the same and aspects are different and, yeah. and all of that. Like, But who he is now, you know, may may not make the same decisions. And the problem with something like consent is it's a, a thing that is constantly evolving. Mm. It, it can't be informed consent once someone is lacking the capacity to be informed, to receive information in the same way. And I think it's also difficult as well to look ahead into the future and see how one might feel with dementia or if the dementia gets worse or, you know, so particularly, I think rightly so, there's an increased emphasis on really trying to help people live well with dementia. So this phrase of sort of living well with dementia, I think is important because it communicates that for a lot of people who'd be diagnosed with dementia at perhaps a relatively early stage, their immediate life doesn't change automatically or doesn't change immediately. Often, although dementia is by definition progressive, that progression can be gradual and slow. And going back to what you were sort of saying about documenting your dad's own ability to articulate things that he's noticed, so you can't really forecast a year into the future and say, well, I wonder, you know, how will I be feeling about this then? It's for any of us, that's difficult to do. None of us know what the next year is going to hold or so on. But actually, if you have some kind of condition that is likely to affect your way you think and feel about things, it becomes even harder, doesn't it? So it's, it's, that is a real, a real challenge. So being able to confidently predict that, well, I don't think I will feel this way about how I am and where I am in a year's time is, you know, that's... Yeah, that's sure. really difficult. It's really difficult to do. And I think what what was touching upon is this uh, also question of of insight. So it's that sort of how good we are at judging our own memory performance, for example, or being aware that things have changed for us and that our behaviour is not what it was, or that our memory is not quite as good as it has been. What's more common when, for example, if you're seeing people in a memory clinic, it's often other people who've noticed it and 
who we try very hard to get what's called a collateral history from someone who knows the person well, obviously with that person's consent, going back to the capacity thing, to, to talk to somebody who might well say, actually, we think that they've been changing gradually over the last year or 18 months or so. And one of the things that's, I guess, linked with some of the research questions we're asking about awareness is this question of, of insight, because even at the relatively early stages, often that insight into the changes in memory can become lost. If you ask them how their memory is often, they'd say it's fine. They, they, they won't necessarily be aware of the difficulties they've got with their memory of how sort of their perhaps repetitiveness or the fact that they're not able to manage things in the way that they, they were. And that obviously can be can be difficult it can be challenging for people for accepting increased levels of care for example if they don't really seem to have that insight that they're not managing as well as they as, as they have done and i think as dementia is being i think hopefully better understood better communicated with sort of initiatives to try and diagnose dementia earlier and sort of the establishment of memory services and so on and just the recognition that this is something that is a bigger problem i think than people thought it was the fact that so many people are affected most people know somebody or have got a relative with dementia the awareness if you like of dementia within the public i think is just increasing and increasing and there's some great initiatives like dementia friends and the Alzheimer's society is very active in this and i think it's really important to reduce sort of the stigma of it to recognize that it's it's often something that people fear but if we can, can reduce the fear and the stigma i think it's really really important and part of that is also because people are more aware of it when people do have concerns about their memory they're much more likely i think to go forward and see their gp or to come to a memory service because they've got concerns not all of those people are going to have dementia so there are lots of reasons that people can have problems with their memory there's lots of reasons that people particularly can be concerned about their memory so that's sort of the holy grail is to find a disease modifying treatment so it's you probably know at the moment there's no curative treatments, there's no treatments that change the disease in, for example, Alzheimer's disease. Even though we know or think we know quite a lot about the underlying pathology and the sort of the mechanisms of particularly Alzheimer's disease, there's been a disappointing set of results from a lot of the drug trials which seem to be targeting the proteins for example we want to target and removing some of the the plaque you can see in alzheimer's disease from the brain and so there's some usefulness and things seem to be working in a way that we'd like them to work yet they don't really have the results that we'd want to see so part of the question there is oh well is that because we're giving these drugs to people too too late on so if we gave them to people earlier might that help and some studies are ongoing at the moment looking at exactly that but that raises the challenges of trying to spot people or diagnose people very, very early on. It can be particularly difficult when we know that alcohol can certainly act or seemingly act as a risk factor for dementia. For several forms of dementia, there are specific forms of dementia that are directly related to the toxic effects of alcohol. But particularly in the UK, alcohol is so ubiquitous that actually and the guidelines are constantly being revised as new evidence comes in. So how much is safe? Is any amount safe? How much is sort of should we, there seems to be potentially a protective effect of a certain amount, but then that gets revised six months later as different research comes in. So this is definitely a a movable risk factor, if you like. But it's very clear that particularly heavy alcohol use does present a significant risk of dementia. Smoking generally, through its mechanisms really of being bad for your 
heart being bad for increasing the risk of stroke and so on has that kind of effect in dementia and then a lot of people are on lots of other medications for lots of other reasons not just non not yeah. sort of recreational dad, drugs but lots well of drugs it. often they have side effects that can affect their memory so particularly with alzheimer's disease the way some of the neurotransmitters that particularly are affected by alzheimer's disease some common medications can also have side effects that act on those neurotransmitters and so on so part of if you like a an assessment, particularly when there's uncertainty, particularly at the early stages. So you hopefully try and gather some kind of information around what else the person is doing and what and so on. And actually, often it can take a bit of time to come to a diagnosis of dementia for exactly those reasons. So particularly if somebody is actively using, you know, a range of recreational drugs, for example. And, you know, so I've certainly seen people in memory services who were under the influence of alcohol and or other drugs at the time of assessment. And obviously that's not a reasonable or fair assessment (laughs) for them. You need to give people the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes that's really difficult to tease apart. Sometimes it's it's very challenging. And it's, it's often why I think sometimes people's dementia diagnosis is delayed or hidden because of all the other things that are going on that's i mean it's really interesting what you're saying about alcohol use as well i mean definitely my dad has been a big alcohol user i mean one of the things that is very obvious to anyone who will be listening to this show is that he's a drinker all of his stories involve that to a a greater or lesser extent um but he gave up drinking you know, completely about a year after, maybe maybe even earlier than that, that he got his diagnosis because it, it just stopped working for him right. in any kind of enjoyable way. Yeah. It's interesting to think that, that, that the drinking may have been partially related to why he got dementia in the end uh, and all of those kinds of things. But then, you know, he knew that smoking and alcohol was bad for him yeah. and he knew that they had caused him health complaints because he had a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing more obvious than that. No. to like say you should probably stop drinking and smoking. Within UCL, there's been a lot of work work that's looked at dementia prevention. There is, I think, in increasing evidence that there are a number of risk factors that are what would be classes sort of potentially modifiable, i.e. in an ideal world, if you could stop people smoking, if you could remove people having high blood pressure or diabetes from the population, then the amount of dementia would decrease. But I think, as you say, a, several of these risk factors are things that we know are not necessarily good for us for a number of reasons. And the idea of what's good for heart health is good for brain health. And I've noticed, I don't know if you noticed around town, the British Heart Foundation, for example, have started using vascular dementia on some of their appeals and so on, just making these links, I think, between someone with who is a smoker, for example, have high blood pressure, they're putting themselves at risk of heart attacks, but also of strokes and potentially of vascular dementia. But the question is, well, People know about these risk factors. What's difficult is, you know, for all of us, it's really challenging to change some of our habits and lifestyle and so on. And so it's thinking about how, you know, thinking for myself as well, is it, is it you know, how do, how do we try and have the, you know, have the motivation to live healthier lives? And is it useful to know that some of these things would also potentially be 
helpful at reducing a future dementia risk. It's an interesting thing when people are towards the end of their life, though, because then the way that we weigh these things up is also different Mm. because it's like, well, if someone gets great pleasure and joy from drinking or smoking, then we're more inclined to say, well, they've only got a few more years and so maybe they should be allowed to do whatever they want. And that's very true and that's been generally my approach to these things with my dad. But then there is also this other question of like, well, that's true, but what if he lives for another 15 more years and like the quality of those years could have been better if he hadn't had that one moment of like joy that he was having that I didn't want to take away from him we're all balancing those things up right when we think about how we use drugs both recreational and medical drugs like it's always a balance of like the now and the future You know, and I guess that's a thing that a lot of the people that you're talking to about their lived experience are trying to balance mm-hmm. as well, the now and the future. Yeah, and I think that sort of, I guess, in one sense related to that. So if we talk about people living with dementia, part of that is a recognition that, you know, as we've already said, a lot of people with dementia will have other health problems. And therefore, there is a sort of a reasonable portion of people who will die with dementia rather than of dementia, if that makes sense. So part of this comes in, so having dementia may well and will probably impact on other health problems. You know, we know, for example, someone's ability to look after their own health can get affected, you know, take medication appropriately, attend appointments and all that type of thing is definitely a significant challenge for people with dementia. But often it is the case that particularly if people have got mild dementia they might you know it doesn't protect you against having all of the other health problems in fact actually there's sort of a common frailty thing with people with dementia you know it's a disease of older of older age and often as i say people have got other health complaints and they'll be generally more frail and more susceptible the risk factors are likely to be risk factors or indeed seem to risk factors in midlife you know that these are things that start in midlife you know decades before and we know that some of the for example memory changes or if you scan people's brains and look for evidence of amyloid plaques and for example you can do that years before a dementia might become clinically apparent or there seems to be quite a long build-up time in many ways before a dementia becomes apparent so these risk factors seem to be active or in play in in earlier life having said that it's also true that someone who's got dementia they will be at much higher risk of delirium so having infections that then will have a profound impact on their memory function that's already not as good as it has been it seems likely that you know they're often their mobility is not as good so they're at more risk of falls more of head injuries they are actually more susceptible often to the effects of of substances and alcohol and so on and there will be physiological reasons for that there's a sort of a chicken and egg in some of these risk factors being definite risk factors well in advance but also can be precipitants of real sort of decline or change in people that have got dementia in terms of trying to help people change or reduce some of these risk factors in midlife but also as they're older you know i think is is important but but difficult and i think as you say with individuals as well in people who have got lifelong habits of things they enjoy and that question of quality of life you can give people information about what's so it seems to be healthy but that's on a population level and so people have to make their own decisions don't they i think really about things that they they enjoy
So your study's relatively like in early stages, right? The study, yeah. the work that you're doing, the research work that you're doing. What we are trying to do is to use ways of objectively measuring both the level and the, the content of awareness in people who can't tell us. So the most obvious thing, if you want to know what somebody's experiencing, you ask them. If you want to know whether someone has seen a face or what they're feeling when they listen to a piece of music, for example, or when they're watching a program on TV, you ask them and they tell you. And then that is essentially how we know whether someone else seemingly is consciously aware of who they are and what's going on and so on and so forth. And as we said earlier, that can get challenging when people lose the ability to communicate clearly. Language is affected by dementia, and then the ability to communicate without language can also become challenging as well. One thing I've noticed listening back is my dad telling me his experience, I can be quite useful because I know him very yeah. well. So I can be like almost his his index, like he can say like this thing, and if he gives me enough of a hint. But obviously, as time's gone on, he can't give me enough of a hint, and I've got no idea yeah. what, he, what he wants to say. Whereas you as a cl clinician don't have that existing knowledge yeah. to be able to help you pull stuff out. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people with more advanced dementia are looked after in residential or care homes in one sense because that's what their care needs demand. So absolutely, I think that people who know the individual really well could pick up on cues, nonverbal cues, just behaviour, will just know them, will know what they like, what they don't like, how they react to things. That's obviously harder when people don't have that. So if you're being looked after by carers who could have enormous amounts of compassion and empathy, but who don't know you as well. And again, there's, there is initiatives to try and get around that. So to really try and capture someone's life story. And a lot of care homes, I think, do that very, very well, but it's still very difficult. And I think particularly challenging and adding on to that is behavioral and psychological elements of dementia are not uncommon. So agitation and distress aren't that uncommon. So people who get agitated for example in a care home shout or just seem very distressed and it can be really hard to know why you try and think well are they in pain are we missing something could be related to things that they used to do and if you knew them a bit better you could help solve that it's can be very very difficult whilst the project we're doing all the study isn't at the stage of being able to look or answer that we're sort of moving back a stage if there are tools that we could use to at least try and identify how aware, what the capacity for awareness someone with more advanced dementia had, what they were seemingly aware of when they were looking at faces, for example, or watching TV, we could potentially use those both to see how they might respond to various interventions to help improve quality of life and so on. And th there would be sort of real value in that. The parallels here, and we're working with a group who've done quite a lot of pioneering work trying to identify awareness in people in vegetative states and in minimally conscious states and coma, essentially. So this is a patient group, if you like, who it could be really unclear whether they're conscious or aware of their surroundings because they're in a minimally conscious state or that's what it appears. So they are not able to respond. You can't ask them questions, they can't answer questions, they can't point to things or behaviourally respond. And this work by Adrian Owen in particular, who's used some of these imaging approaches we're using to look at brain activity and use that to understand that actually 
a relative percentage of these people who seemingly are completely unresponsive are actually fully aware and conscious and experiencing what's going on around them. And that obviously has profound implications for how they might be cared for. I mean, in one sense, it shouldn't do because they get cared for and you get cared for. But actually, it's important. I mean, these decisions around intensive care units, for example, trying to identify what stage of how severe a brain injury is and so on. Some of these techniques are and have been and will continue to be, I think, extremely important. Part of our project is taking some of these approaches. So I'll give you an example. What we're using is a, is a, you've got an eight minute black and white Alfred Hitchcock film, which is sort of an engaging, interesting, relatively tense film. And you can show people that film whilst using a type of technology called functional MRI, which allows you essentially to look at blood flow as a circuit for brain activity. So you can in real time essentially look at which areas of the brain seem to be more active as a response to any kind of stimulus. So we can look at what's happening in people's brains while they're watching this film. And this approach has been used, again, in people in vegetative states to identify that some people are seemingly completely consciously aware and following the story and the plot, if you like, despite the fact that they are unresponsive. So by watching or by tracking how someone's brain becomes active, you can very reliably identify that, ah, that pattern of brain activity means that it's not just noise, they're they're actually engaging with this. They are actually following what is going on. In a similar way with the faces, you can use both MRI, but also other types of techniques, EEG, for example, to look at electrical activity in the brain and the way that certain areas of the brain respond to, for example, seeing a face, that experience of, oh, that's a face, I'm looking at a face, is different to that sort of conscious awareness of a face has a specific brain signature, if you like. Then that's been demonstrated in babies as, as, as children develop, the way the brain responds to it, you know, say, oh, I recognise that as a face, um, develops in, in the first year of life or so. So we can use these kind of ways of measuring brain activity in response to, for example, you know, faces to get a objective measure of whether or not that person is consciously experiencing a face if consciously experiencing that as a coherent film and so on and so forth so these are approaches that objectively allow us to get some of this information and people who can't tell us and i think the other thing that's i guess important is that a lot of the ways that these approaches have been used to try and assess conscious awareness and so on it's quite challenging to come up ways of doing this when the person doesn't have to really respond at all just to be so actually this sort of allowing the person to just be passive and not have to press a button or not have to tell you what they're experiencing, that's quite difficult. So these are relatively recent approaches that have been used to allow us to do that, which make them amenable for people with advanced dementia who couldn't follow an instruction to do something or, obviously, as I keep saying, can't tell you what they are thinking and experiencing. I mean, that's so so fascinating to me. Uh, and it's an interesting one as well for a, from a carer point of view. You want to know the answer to how much someone is experiencing the world, but the answer to that question may or may not be heartbreaking in a different way. Like it's easier to sort of feel sad for someone who is not there. It's sadder to think someone is there but trapped. They're experiencing the world, but I I can't see how they are. Absolutely. And as I say, I think that some of the work that we did leading up to this project was running some focus groups. We had some support from the Alzheimer's Society and just speaking to relatives and care and so on, because this is obviously a really important question. So it's something that I think a lot of people who work with people with dementia 
think about and get asked, you know, particularly upsetting for people who, for example, might go and visit a loved one in a care home and they don't seem to recognise them. You know, that question of well, what on earth are they actually aware of, juxtaposed with there's lots of anecdotal reports of people who have seemingly lucid moments, you know, with that sense of, well, well, we played them that piece of music and they seemed to come alive in some way that they hadn't responded like that for months. And, you know, so trying to understand exactly what's going on is, again, it's part of what's sort of fueling us to try and get some information on this, as well as to help the carers. Because as you say, there are difficulties either way. So one of the things we wanted to be very clear about is in approaching this work, whether or not this was something that people and carers and people with dementia felt was both useful and important and would want to know and certainly from our focus groups the answer was absolutely yes because I think that actually it's very troubling for people just not to know yes and I think that it works both ways so again I guess I feel I want to put the caveat as we've kept saying dementia there are lots of different people with dementia and it affects people in lots of different ways so I do not foresee there being general conclusions if you like from this (laughs) and saying this is what happens for everyone with dementia is likely and I think part of the thing that will probably be the most useful and interesting will be just the amount of variability that we might see in this and although i described that this work has been done in people with minimally conscious states and vegetative states people with dementia are obviously a very different category so again i think the likelihood this is not a what we class as locked in syndrome which is right. sort of people that that they're locked in and trapped because we know that the process and the gradual process usually of dementia can affect memory and all these other areas you see to me. So this yeah. is a degenerative, progressive condition. Right. So I think in that sense, it's very unlikely that there'll be that sense of somebody who's fully intact, but trapped in some way. So actually what we're wanting to know is how variable really are some of these things in people with dementia. And I think in terms of trying to help carers and you know people with, with dementia at the earlier stages understand what it might be like for people at the more advanced stages. Because again, it's sort of an anecdotal thing that I think sometimes, and we had this in our focus groups and talking to carers, sometimes it would be a very reassuring thought to know that their loved one who, for example, is in a care home is not wholly aware of where they are. So they're not living in this state of feeling abandoned mm-hmm. and feeling terrified of why have you left me in this place? Yes. And just, I mean, so, so in one sense, there is the potential for actually a lack of awareness to be quite comforting. At the same time, the anecdotal reports of this kind of elements of lucidity, and as, and as you say, with people, when you, when you know someone well, like when you, as you interact with your father, you will share that kind of communication and you would be able to interpret his behaviour and so on. He will respond to you in a way that is meaningful. You can't objectively score or do suit to me because, yeah. you know, human communication and everything is, is more than that, isn't no, it? No, absolutely. So actually, somebody's sense that their loved one is is still very much there and the things that they are relating to with that person and just sitting with that person or when they're hugging their father with with dementia that's a very real relational experience of that person being you know so that may not be exactly the same person they were but they are still their father and that personhood is there and so on i think that actually what we're doing is trying to look at providing some objective so you keep using the word objective, but if you like proxy measures of this by measuring what's going on in the brain and brain sort of activity and how that relates to some of these sort of observed changes. When I see my dad now, he doesn't literally remember me and that might make somebody think, well, he doesn't know me anymore. But it's interesting what you're saying because, I mean, that's 
kind of corresponds with my sense that whilst he might not remember my name and he might have to ask who I am in relation to him, mm. the way that we interact there's on a one level it's like a kind of I, I've been thinking of it as kind of like muscle memory or like some other intangible way he does remember me because he relates to me in a different way from the other people in the room you know he there's a familiarity even if he doesn't really know why yeah. there's a familiarity that that does that does exist and I or at least it feels like it exists and I guess the kind of work you're doing is is what would tell me whether it does exist or not. We could show what's happening in your dad's brain for example or a measurement of some bit of activity but whilst I think these are really really useful techniques to provide these kind of objective measures I think that you know what you were just saying about the relationship with your dad is much broader and deeper than is going to be boiled down to what might be shown on an EEG or in it on an MRI scanner. So I think that's for me, both an obvious thing and an important thing to emphasize here that I think that these neuroscientific approaches are extremely useful and valuable and can really open up the ability to understand what's going on in the experience of people who can't communicate that, whilst at the same time being really important to articulate that there's lots of other elements of how we relate to people that cannot necessarily be boiled down to that as well. I'm here at the UCL in London with Daniel Davis, and I'm here to talk to him about the work that he does around ageing, delirium and dementia. So first of all, hello, Daniel. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks very much for getting me involved. So I have two jobs. One is as a doctor for older people. I'm a geriatrician at University College Hospital. I see patients who obviously are older, but it's not just about an age-related service, because if you're you know, 95, but you just have one heart problem, you should still see a cardiologist. And if you just have a kidney problem, you should see a renal physician. Where we come into it is where people have a bit of heart failure, maybe a little bit of renal problems, some mobility problems, some cognitive problems, maybe some mental health problems, and maybe some social housing type issues. And the skill of the geriatrician is really trying to make an analysis of all the healthcare problems that come with aging, devising a plan to make people a bit more independent and a bit more able to achieve the things that they want to do. So it's ultimately a very positive way to try and approach the problems of older age. The research that I do is as an epidemiologist. That means I track the health of lots and thousands of older people through populations. We start at age 70, but it goes all the way to 100 plus. And that huge spectrum includes people who are 70 and still working and looking after grandkids and so on, all the way through to people who are in nursing homes. The nice thing about population research is that it really tells you some truth about what's going on to people at large, because it tells you what happens to whom, by how much and when. Sometimes people study things like dementia or stroke or so on by taking people who were presented to hospital, then just following them up to see what happened to them. That's fine, but it makes an assumption. That is a big assumption. Not everyone who has a stroke or heart attack necessarily made it into hospital. If you only start with a selected proportion of society, your research then doesn't represent all of the population. And that's can be as important as the difference between, for example, an opinion poll where you just do a sort of Twitter opinion versus a true population referendum. And sometimes you can be off just by a few percent and you can actually get 
quite different conclusions because you haven't represented everyone who is eligible to be in the study. So it's really important that the research that we do is population-based. And population-based means that we represent everyone in the sample across the age range, though obviously I'm focusing on an older age, but that's also around a fitness range. So we don't just want healthy people. We don't just want really unhealthy people. We want everyone in between. We don't want people in a whole range of socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage because that is a huge determinant of outcomes for older people. So the research that we do here in this unit is about aging. It's about following people up and it's about trying to understand what determines their health and fitness as they age. My specific area of interest is around what happens when older people become hospitalised. And this really came about because I was seeing on the wards time and time and time again that people would come into hospital with something that you would have thought on paper would be completely curable. Things like a pneumonia or dehydration or a new medication or something. And you think that if you just treat all of those things, rehydrate them, give them antibiotics, take away the bad medication, they should go back to normal. That's the sort of classical teaching on what happens in hospital. But I was seeing as they were being discharged or if I was following them on my clinic that sometimes even though you cured the pneumonia, they weren't quite the same again. And sometimes that could have been quite subtle, like just a bit of loss of confidence maybe around the house or something. Sometimes it's actually much, much more marked that people who are going home needing more carers, maybe they'd come in just needing once a day care and then they were going home and then suddenly they need twice a day or three times a day. They would take a hit and it could take weeks, months, or maybe even never to get quite back to normal. And then as you sort of look around and ask around and scratch that a little bit more, you suddenly realise that there are lots and lots of people who can be admitted to hospital and then they go home, but they're never the same again. As I say, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it can be quite major. And sometimes people actually get admitted to nursing homes after a hospital admission, which seems completely strange to me because there'll be people that recognize the story of very vulnerable older people whose families have tried a lot of different things to keep at home. Maybe it's in accordance with the wishes of the person or that's just what people have tried. And then something happens that results in hospital admission. And then for some reason, you can't reconstruct the care situation back at home. And then after weeks and maybe sometimes months in hospital, it's sort of worked out that they need to go to a nursing home. Sometimes that does happen. But I was really interested in scientifically more in this idea that, for example, a pneumonia or a minor operation could have an impact or cast a shadow well beyond the event itself. So I decided to try and study that using an epidemiological approach, a population-based cohort approach where we recruited people not in hospital. We chose the London borough of Camden initially. Camden is an interesting part of London. It's extremely diverse, maybe one of the most diverse parts of Europe, you could argue. It's diverse ethnically, it's diverse in age range, and it's obviously diverse in socioeconomic status. And that means that all of those stories that play out in that area are representative of certainly ageing in an urban setting. Since the Camden study, we've expanded into Herefordshire so that we've got a comparative site of same methods, but using it in a rural setting. Ideally, one would do it across the entire UK or maybe even the whole world. But as you set up a research study, you need to choose your target areas initially. So we recruited this study to track the events that happen to people as they get older and particularly hospitalisation. But we didn't start in hospital. We started when they were at home at their best. So we interviewed thousands of people to ascertain their best cognitive state, their best strength, their best mobility, what care needs they had, what health conditions they had, how much carer support they had, all of that. We just sort of got a snapshot of their sort of best. And then we devised a system where if anyone got sick, got admitted to hospital, that would trigger an alert and we would see them every day that they were in hospital. So we had the community side of things, then we had the hospital side of things. And then as they went home, we would then follow them up at home. So we linked up really both 
the before and the during and the after hospitalization to really try and piece that puzzle together. How much of what you see at follow-up was essentially inevitable before and how much of it might have been preventable with better hospital care. That's, I guess, another sort of nutshell statement on geriatric medicine, which it's trying to disentangle what's the inevitable from the preventable. That's my observation as a son and a carer. Often I'm trying to work out what's the inevitable and what's the preventable and and how can we help him? You know, obviously we're all going to die. That's going to happen. But obviously we can have as good a life as possible up until the point we do die. And when people get very old, it's really hard to disentangle those things. And it's interesting to think that it's the same for the doctors, that doctors looking at my dad are also trying to separate those things out and can't necessarily give a definite answer and can't necessarily say, yes, that's preventable and that's inevitable. two sort of scientific stories I want to really tell you. One is around delirium and the impact of this idea that there's a particular impact of hospitalisation on the brain. That's one story. The other one I want to tell you is about population ageing and about how socioeconomic determinants can skew the experience of ageing for people across society. The second one is a story that's told by this research unit but the first one is much more my own group's research but both are important both public understanding the first one i want to talk to about is about delirium and hospitalization delirium is a condition that's sort of come up basically since ancient times it's described by hippocrates and the ancient doctors who described a sort of cognitive state that comes on with a fever the modern understanding of it now is that it's a brain's response to any kind of disturbance in the body system so that could be from dehydration it could be from infection it could be from heart failure it could be from anything really but the key thing is that everyone has a threshold for delirium but it varies by how fit you are. So if you're young, strong, not frail, no dementia, then your reserve for delirium is very, very high. We could still get it, but it would take for meningitis or, you know, a road traffic accident or intensive care admission to be severe enough to push you into delirium. But we could get it. But if you're on the other end of the spectrum where you're older, frail, already have dementia or at least some cognitive impairment, then the kinds of things that will tip you into delirium might be trivial. They might be a urine infection. A urine infection in an older person could induce a state of delirium, much more confusion, hallucinations and all that sort of stuff just from a trivial amount of infection. Same with minor operations, sometimes you see it or an anaesthetic, sometimes you see it. Again, not necessarily about the cause of the delirium. It's the fact that you were frail enough for that delirium to happen. Once you get the delirium, then other problems come. I, I find that if people have seen it in a, in a relative or a friend, they know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those who've never seen it, either in a personal or professional context, the kind of thing I'm talking about is an older person might come into hospital, you know, imagine they're 85, they've got a care package, the carers come once in the morning and once in the evening to help them get washed and dressed and put them to bed. In between times, they're okay pottering around the house, they can make a cup of tea, they can make a microwave meal or something. Maybe got a few health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, maybe they take seven or eight different medications but they can do that from a blister packet they won't go out on their own but they'll go out maybe once every couple of days if their family member comes and takes them out and they can walk down to the shops get milk and papers might use a walking stick that kind of person a lot of people like that i look after that's their sort of stable state 
balanced situation. And then they get sick, they'll come to hospital. And then when they're in hospital, their cognition goes out the window. Sleep gets really disturbed, day, night, inverted, maybe some hallucinations, maybe some delusions as well, thinking that people are trying to harm them. Can't make sense of the environment around them, really cognitively impaired. And then of course, sometimes that then gets more medications to treat that cognitive state, or they might become a danger, they might fall on the ward, then they might get a break of bone. So the delirium itself, yes, it's a warning sign that your brain is vulnerable. But once you get worsened cognitive impairment, then other problems follow. Again, sometimes swallow gets impaired, that might mean that the food goes down the wrong tube, it then gets to infection. Often you see that it's this straw that breaks the camel's back and this spiral of stuff then happens. And that's where a lot of health problems come into it. We try and treat each and every one of those things and try and get the person back to normal, normal for them. And probably in 50% of cases that happens without too much problem. But then there are the people that go where it goes on for days, weeks and weeks. You think, are they ever going to get back to how they were before? Are we ever going to get them back to that state I described before? And there's no, at the moment, our scientific understanding, it doesn't explain why that shouldn't be the case, because they've come in with an infection, they've come in with dehydration, we've treated those things. Why are they not back to normal? I think there's two things that delirium might tell you. Firstly, it might be a window into your future, in a way. The thing is, the vulnerability is not apparent unless you stress the person. So like you and I, we could look exactly the same. We could have the same MRI scan and everything, but it's just that there's something that the delirium uncovers. Secondly, there may be another route where the delirium itself is actually causing injury to the brain. And that's why people are not recovering because it's actually at some level, this is a complete hypothesis, that for some people there is injury happening in the brain. Therefore, maybe not only is delirium potentially a window into your risk, but it may be that if we could have a drug that just evaporated the delirium, maybe that, would prevent dementia progression. This is the area that is of major interest to us. Can better treatments and interventions for delirium not only help delirium, but actually help dementia long-term? If that's even a little bit correct, then delirium is so common, dementia is so common, that actually a little bit of improvement could multiply out millions fold. Before we sort of started recording, I was sort of describing my dad's situation and he probably had a stroke around like 88, 89. I said, you know, that's quite lucky. And you, you know, you agreed that actually getting to 88, 89 and then dementia starting, that's quite a lucky situation. My dad was actually very healthy for a very long time, although he wasn't very healthy necessarily because he'd had a quadruple heart bypass, which enabled him to be healthier for longer. And when you're sort of saying 85, I'm thinking of my dad at that age and I think he was riding a bike, you know, and, and and, and and being very active. That's not the case now. And he is much more the kind of person you were describing uh, at 85, 10 years later than that, at 95, that's kind of where he's at. That comes back to the second story that I want to tell you about, which is really this idea of life course approach to aging. You don't just wake up at 85, frail or not frail. There's a journey that has led you to that. And that's as much to do with how you were when you were 70, when you were 55, when you were 15 and when you were five or when even when you were born and all of these things accrue and part of the story of your life is how that aging looks so we talk about healthy aging as if it's a kind of binary thing that's healthy and unhealthy but of course it's a continuum and you you, you sort of mentioned that because you talked about him well was he healthy he had a heart bypass i mean is that health or not health to me the geriatrician's thinking is not really necessarily about well how many diseases do you have like do you have diabetes obviously those things need management 
if you're going to live a long life. Actually, what's more important is what we think of as function. What can you do? If you've had a heart attack, but you're still able to work, look after grandkids, live independently, all of those things, then I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it's not as important. And I don't think older people care necessarily if they're on this type of medication, this beta blocker or this ACE inhibitor. Older people are just people. And we are also aging and we have our own place in that story. You know, that back to the future idea that if you could go back in time, so that if you go back in time and then you just, you know, you, you, you took a left turn rather than a right turn, then like your future would completely um, change or like you might not even, your parents might not meet or you might not exist and all that kind of stuff. That applies equally now to our futures. Maybe a decision I take today is going to have an impact on how I am when I'm 95. That's kind of both hopeful and also scary because it means that these things are sort of within our control to an extent. But it's not just about our own story because we are also part of society and citizens. If there are distributions, as in like there's a bell curve for lots of things, there's a bell curve for wealth, there's a bell curve for intelligence, there's a bell curve for height. And so you're born with a certain set of cards, genetic cards or income cards or whatever. Social inequalities may widen or shrink depending of different policy things like education access, healthcare access. You know, you can compare United Kingdom versus United States that kind of thing. But also you can compare the UK now versus the UK 30 years ago, 60 years ago. None of these things have been stable over time. Some of your aging is down to the decisions that you make and the choices you have. Maybe some of it's diet, some of it's lifestyle, those sorts of things. Definitely some of them are policy related. Some of them are to do with equity to access to education and health behaviours that are shaped by societal industry, all of those things. So healthy aging, once you start to try and unpick it, it's so much more than just health. Healthy aging is the sort of civilization's aspiration, isn't it? It's the opposite from dying prematurely. And I guess part of the task of going back to what I was saying is what I do as a geriatrician is trying to make that happen for people that they can enjoy an independent life as much as possible. There are very personal decisions around what might happen at the very, very end of life and how much control and agency you expect to have around that. And of course, those expectations change over time and over society too. Thinking about my dad, you were talking about, you know, we are citizens, we're part of a society and those things are true. He's a white middle class man who had a very lucky war in World War II and didn't see any combat. So he's had every piece of luck. And so it makes sense that he was healthy and happy till 88. And in a way, as he becomes unhappy, one of the things I think, and people don't necessarily like to hear these kind of things, is like, well, he did have a lucky life. So if he has an unhappy five years at the end of it, the net positive is the great life that he had. You know, sad that he had five unhappy years. I've had quite a few unhappy years and I'm 38. So I think he's he's done better than a lot of people. So it's interesting to see how the individuality of people can Im- influence these things, but how that individuality is not separate from the fact that we are part of a community and a, a culture. Two things to, to pick up on from that. One is about the individual and the other one is about society. But I wanted to ask you about this idea that dementia is inevitably accruing losses, that it's all about loss, 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 this narrative of loss. It's not always inevitably this narrative of loss, but actually it's something sometimes people gain something or difference in response to the illness. I definitely think that's true. And I definitely have known people who, I mean, and dementia, again, is a word that that is a massive umbrella term, uh, as I understand it. And so there are many different kinds of dementia. And so it's different for different people. But I've definitely known people who are like, they see a lot of happiness and like a, a new discovery within sometimes very people who've had very sad life stories, when they forget their lives, are liberated by that and can just enjoy the kind of more innocent childlike parts of what it is to be human at any age. Those things are part of us. So I've definitely seen positives for people. The show I make is called Down to 
a sunless sea. And it's called that for many reasons, but it it is partly because for him, that is what it is like. The sun is going down, things are getting harder, and he doesn't want to go in that direction, but he is forced to do that by the reality of his life and circumstances. But that is only one narrative. What's your view on this as somebody who's, I guess, seen lots of different kinds of dementia and lots of different individuals dealing with these these things? Yeah, you're right. I don't think it is the sort of like inexorable bit by bit decline, decline, decline. I think if you if you just sort of move away from this idea of cataloging deficits or cataloging memory tasks that people fail on or whatever, I mean, it's a very kind of almost has some implicit sets of judgment in those kinds of right. thing anyway. But just focus on what's your short, medium, and long term plan here. What are the kinds of things that you need help with or don't need help with or would like some help with or does that allow you to reassess your own person in your profession in your family it's healthy to do that anyway right yeah. <laughs> would have a sense of that anyway yeah. at all at all ages i like this idea but I, you know it's not it's not everyone's story that dementia has potential to liberate as well in a way going back to this it struck me when you said you know if he has five unhealthy years at the end you know the demographic idea is this one called compression of morbidity morbidity is illness or ill health and mortality is you know life expectancy so there's no doubt that life expectancy has gone up and up and up and up in industrialized countries since the 50s we've gained the equivalent of an entire day of our week more of life proportionally so what are you going to do with that extra day that you know that we now have in this generation that's aging there's no question that life expectancy is going up if there's going to be an inevitable part of disability that comes with the very end of life the trade-off is very different if you know that that's going to be a percentage versus an absolute so if I said, you're definitely going to live to 100, and until 99, you'll be totally fine, but probably one year will be left in a nursing home. That's a completely different trade-off to saying 10% of your life is going to be in a nursing home, and therefore for 10 years, from the age 90 to 100, if you die at 70, it's 7 years. If you die at 80, it's 8 years. If it's 90, it's 9 years. So however long you live, that that period of disability stretches out with the life. The idea is that we might be trying to compress that morbidity. We kind of square that curve. You live longer, but actually healthy life expectancy, life expectancy that's disability-free, for example, rises faster than the actual absolute life expectancy. And I think that there are signs that that's happening in society, but the dividend of healthier living is not equally spread across the social groups. People who've always been advantaged go into a healthier and more advantaged older life and people who've always been disadvantaged experience illnesses earlier, you know, at younger ages and more disability as a result of that. Again, some of that will be to do with policy implications that mean that they're less active, less access to good foods and diets and nutrition. All of these things are being described in the cohort studies that we see. That's why there's a government initiative to try and talk about this idea of five extra years. It's this comes with this observation that if you divide people age 65 and over by income, the top fifth versus the bottom fifth are likely to have five extra years of disability-free ageing compared with the most disadvantaged. The inequalities are widening even faster. It's a recent report about disadvantaged women. Life expectancy is actually going down now in the UK. That work's all come from UCL, Michael Marmot's report on that, which is really, I mean, alarming. On average, we're going up, but the average just is the bit in the middle. It hides what's happening at either end of the bell curve. And if that bell curve is widening, obviously that's worse for the people at the bottom end of the bell curve, but actually worse for society as a whole. So it's in no one's interest that we live in an unequal society in that respect. Then that becomes way more than just about ageing. It becomes about social policy, taxation, you know, and, and 
all the way back to childhood circumstances, education, schooling, you know, all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to hear that as well. Like, I mean, it's definitely been my anecdotal observation that my dad has had many different kinds of privilege. We always think about privilege as just economic or just to do with race or gender or sexuality. There were obvious ways that people are luckier or discriminated against. I mean, luckiness, it's not really luck when it's structural oppressions. But there are other forms of luckiness. My dad didn't go to university, so he's not like educationally advantaged in that way. But he's got children of lots of different generations. That means that he's got quite a large support network, some of whom have financial ability to help and support him. Others of us don't necessarily. It's interesting to see the amount of privileges, I guess, that he has had in his life and how it's been really happy. Like he's enjoyed those privileges without fully knowing they're there. And now he's kind of for the first time lost a lot of different privileges relatively quickly in different kinds of ways and how that has really hit him because he's not prepared for it. But even then, you know, he's still got lots of privileges over socially disadvantaged people in the same age who suddenly get hit by all of those things. And as you say, probably they get hit by those things earlier than he has. And so again, it's it's this thing of like, you could look at my dad and feel really sorry for him. And I do. But you can also look at my dad and, and, and go like, wow, you know, I, I hope I'm as lucky as you are, you know. Has he ever had delirium? That's a good question, isn't it? Because I don't know. I can't say if he's, if he's had delirium for sure. He hasn't spent very long periods of time in hospital. He's been lucky in that respect. The key thing with delirium is that it's driven by an illness. It's driven by something going on outside the brain. So it's like pain or a new medication, constipation, urine problems, skin problems, whatever, like anything. And he's had all of those. And he has quite a lot of skin problems, actually. Um, But never had delirium as a result. Well, he may have done, you know, at a certain point he was, you know, when he's, because as I say, he's very fiercely independent. He was living at home. Yes, people were coming in occasionally, but between when we were in with him and not, I don't know what happened. And, you know, you only have and you will you this will be your problem or like not necessarily a problem but a a thing that you deal with is that you only have the ability of the person to describe their symptoms to you in some ways to work out what's going on one of the things that might be a frontier for research we're starting to do now and hope to do more of in the next few months really is to see whether or not we can get extra signals for people based on wearable devices or using technology to kind of know what happens when you're not there kind of thing. Maybe some of it's recording things based on movements on a wearable watch type device or home-based sensors that can track how often you're going to the loo and are you getting up to make a cup of tea and if the fridge hasn't been opened for 24 hours is that a warning sign for something obviously the technology is there to record that to a massive extent but what we still need to do is make sense of what those signals may or may not be telling us and relating them to actual events that happen to people it's the sort of forefront of what we hope to achieve with this kind of technology and understanding more about trajectories in people with dementia and delirium yeah, I mean, because that's the that's because the, the, the big question always, and that's come up, you know, in memory clinics and with my dad and, and and just around this issue in general is, you know, it's very hard sometimes to to work out what is physical health and what is mental health. Although, of course, mental health is also physical health. That that binary is like many a false one. It's also quite a useful one in that it can kind of gives us these two different categories, and it is hard to work out. Of, and certainly earlier on in my dad's journey, like now 
it's much easier to work out what's going on. But earlier on, it was hard to work out if he was depressed or if he was processing slower. It was harder to, you know, there's, and, you know, maybe that is the same thing anyway, because I, I experienced depression and I, I, I suspect I process things slower when I'm depressed than I do when I'm not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess at the moment, the proof is in what actually then happens to people down the line. But you're right. I mean, it's hard. Obviously, you know, depression, there will be some affective, there will be some kind of emotional response to the loss of cognitive functions, whether or not that's the depression and that's driving dementia, or if dementia is predisposing you to depression. Again, it's very hard to tease those things apart. There is some research to suggest that people who have never had depression in their earlier lives, who experience depression for the first time in their later lives, there is some research to suggest that that may evolve into a dementia more strongly than other types of experiences of depression earlier on. It's not definitive, but that's, there's, there is that signal. Actually, that is very, very interesting. Just after him being 88, kind of, I guess he was 89 or something like that, he he definitely spent like a year of like proper solid depression. Like he didn't like, he was, he was losing all of his senses and, you know, he, he, he wouldn't eat, you know, like I can't, I, when I'm depressed, I can't eat. So I understood that, 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 like where he was coming from. And, you know, me and my partner would have him over every night and cook for him and make sure he was eating. And then he kind of got out of that depression and he kind of had a, like a little, bit of time where he was a bit back to who he had been you know with impairments but but like sucking the marrow out of life again but it's interesting to think that that year of solid depression may have sped up this process one thing I definitely want to emphasize is this idea that delirium is important for two reasons really firstly it's often not recognized even in hospitals that are supposed to diagnose delirium and it can come with a significant amount of distress as a result because it's almost like being in delirium is like having your drink spiked you don't realize why and you can't make sense of why you feel more confused than normal and you're in an unfamiliar environment you're getting a ct scan it looks like you're getting abducted by aliens it can be very distressing it's also distressing for families if they've never heard of delirium because sometimes if that's the first thing you don't have dementia sometimes people think that delirium is a sort of new dementia that evolved over like a few hours and days and people don't necessarily know that that's not how dementia works right so unless it's diagnosed and it's explained to patients and families that this is a thing that can happen when older people with the predisposition get sick then the distress gets magnified and when people become really confused on the wards and need to be sedated staff find that very distressing as well so modern healthcare isn't really well set up for acutely behaviorally disturbed older people there's a substantial psychological morbidity that comes with delirium that's the first reason because of the distress the second reason is because i think that delirium does tell you something about future risk and that it may be a window into the dementia. And so we'll only really be able to nail that down with better and more careful research about who gets delirium, what caused it, by how much, what happened to them at follow-up, and was it associated with any kind of marker that the brain was actually being damaged through that delirium. Those are the two things I really want to emphasise about delirium. You can hear past and future episodes of Down to a Sunless Sea 
on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on the podcast feed dedicated to Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. And if you can't find Down to a Sunless Sea where you normally find your podcasts, let me know and I'll put that right. Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad is on Facebook and you can find it on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. All of the episodes and the show notes are collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Goosefan101. Thanks to Dr. Jonathan Huntley and Dr. Daniel Davis for their wonderful contributions to this episode. You can find out more about their research projects through the Wellcome Trust website. Some things are outside knowledge. One is unable to, to, to make experiments to, to formulate hypotheses and then experiments prove or disprove them. <laughs>